Welcome to BioCentury This Week. I'm Jeff Cranmer, Executive Editor of BioCentury, and I'm joined by... Simone Fishburne, Editor-in-Chief. Lauren Marks, Senior Editor. Karen Koch-Tusman, Senior Editor. On this week's pod, what's next for CRISPR and gene therapy? Plus, we preview the 8th Annual BioCentury Bay Helix China Healthcare Summit. It's in mid-November, and we'll have Josh Berlin from our team here at BioCentury join us later in the pod to tell us what to look forward to at the conference. It will be a hybrid event with some folks gathering in person in Shanghai and the rest of us logging in from wherever we may be in the world. And we'll also take a quick look at our most recent emerging company profiles. LP Science, a Shanghai-based company that's raised $260 million in venture money from the likes of LAV, Hill House, and Cormorant, and Rectify, which launched two weeks ago with a $100 million Series A round. But first, let's turn to CRISPR, a publication streak in CRISPR gene editing has been building momentum for methods that can break the barriers to the technology's use in drug development. Researchers are rapidly moving beyond relying on the natural properties of Cas enzymes and are instead now increasingly turning to nuclease engineering to make the enzymes more compatible with editing disease-causing genes. Karen, why don't you uh, kick us off here? Sure. Well, this is one of those stories that emerges because we at BioCentury monitor the literature for translationally relevant innovations. And that allows us to be in a position to spot trends or clusters of things. These innovations are captured in our weekly translation in brief feature that comes out on Fridays and Those tend to be technology innovations. Others, which focus on therapeutic targets, tend to be captured in our distillery, which will be coming up very soon. But in this case, we just noticed a cluster of papers looking at advances in gene therapy machinery, either via engineering or via the discovery of new natural nucleases with advantageous properties. And this is something where A lot of the work was coming out of some of the usual suspects, the lab of David Liu, for example, at the Broad Institute, and or alumni of labs that some of the CRISPR pioneers, Jennifer Dowden and Feng Zhang, but other groups as well, and even some companies. And so the major trends we saw was around engineering nucleases to be smaller. And a big advantage there is that they could fit into AAV vectors. Another form of innovation was around increasing the efficiency of nucleases. And then a third arm was around optimizing nucleases that work in bacteria or discovered in bacteria so that they can work in human cells. In some cases, those innovations happened on more than one of those axes, and that's kind of captured in a neat figure in my colleague Danielle's story. This was just a great opportunity to look at what's been happening. We've been keeping track of this and so sort of summarize it all and and make sense of it for folks. Another arm that sprang out of this was also new innovations in prime editing, um, which is a form of sort of search and replace 
editing, then so there was a cluster of papers around that as well. And in the story, we also dive into some companies that have industrialized this tinkering process, either on the engineering front or on the natural enzyme discovery front. Turning to Lauren, Karen mentioned AAV vectors. Lauren, what's the innovation like on that front that you've been tracking? Yeah, so last week we did a, a story on the next generation of gene therapy companies that was looking more specifically at the gene replacement companies. This was a piece of a, a much larger analysis that we've been doing on gene therapy over the past few weeks. But this story looked at the 51 companies that we found in BCIQ that were founded over the last five years and analyzed the types of technologies that we're working on. Something interesting that came out of that was that about 80% of those companies are working on what I would consider to be next generation gene therapy technologies. And the huge majority of those were AAV companies. So a lot of the AAV gene therapies that are in the clinic right now are based on the natural serotypes of the AAV virus. A lot of these new companies are looking at not just variants of those, but they actually have platforms to create new AAV vectors that have improved properties. Like they can carry larger cargo. So maybe the CRISPR enzymes don't have to be decreased that much or better homing to tissues outside of the liver, which can have a big impact on liver toxicity. And it can also make the therapies more effective and the types of cells that they transfect. There are a lot of different ways that companies are trying to improve on the AAV technologies. I really liked all the neat figures you have in this story that just really lay out the different categories of innovations, like engineering of capsid versus transgenes versus immune evasion. And then I, I also like that you got into non-viral delivery technologies because I've been hearing a lot of buzz about those. What were you seeing there? Yeah, so that was the other the other really big area in these companies that seems to be a growing focus. We saw very few companies are working in ex vivo gene therapy technologies now. Lentiviral vectors are, I don't want to say they're on the way out, but they're not the focus of the newer companies. And, and it seems like non-viral technologies are, are sort of moving in in that place. And they're different from the first generation non-viral stuff. In most cases, they're not just simple DNA plasmids that were taken out of bacteria or you know derived from viruses because efficiency was an issue with those. So we're seeing a couple synthetic DNA non-viral gene therapy companies, which are sort of completely engineering a circular DNA to have a similar function as a plasmid, but to be more efficient, to not be recognized at all by the immune system. So it won't be eliminated before it can deliver its genes. There are also some nanoparticles, some next generation nanoparticles, and some Technologies that are more outside the box, like extracellular vesicle-derived delivery vehicles for gene therapies. And I also really got a kick out of the figure where you lay out innovations in transgenes, I guess, both in terms of how they're structured and then in terms of what's actually being delivered. Was there anything from there that stood out to you as particularly cool? I think that was the coolest part of this. So usually when we're thinking about these gene replacement technologies, it's it's a genetic disease with a clear target, a clear gene that you want to replace. You know, it's, it's mutated, it's lost in patients with the disease. But it seems like the next generation of gene therapy companies is looking past that. They're, in terms of the structures, 
Some companies are delivering larger genes by splitting them between multiple vectors and using a transplicing to put them back together. I thought the chemogenetics companies were really interesting. So in this case, you're delivering a receptor that's often engineered to have certain properties into a target cell. And that receptor can be modulated by a small molecule that you deliver separately. So I thought those were pretty cool. And then even just in terms of the genes that you're delivering, there was one company doing tRNAs. And there are other similar ideas where you're delivering a gene that encodes something that then acts as sort of a regulator of expression of other genes. So in the tRNA case, they're trying to stabilize certain whatever particular mRNA that's associated with. And then there are some things that we know are on the horizon, like delivering a gene therapy that secretes an antibody, you know, Mm -hmm. so you have a continual source of internal antibody generation and similarly with miRNA. Yeah, we wrote a story a while back about encoded antibodies. We called them the quiet disruptors because it seems like if it takes off, it has the potential to really shake up the biologics industry, but still early days, of course. Well, I like Lauren's last story simply because it was a happy story. The other two uh, (laughs) before that focused on some of the hurdles that uh, gene therapies have faced in what has been something of a difficult year. So all three stories are now online at biocentury.com. And Lauren, you're telling me that we have one more coming? Yeah, so there are actually four. So my colleague Gunjan also did a data bite that looked at the different clinical disease areas. And she'll have a story coming out soon that reflects everything that I just talked about, about the next generation technologies, but she is looking at the deals the gene therapy deals, I think over the past couple of years, maybe the past two years. And she's finding similar trends with a lot of activity in AAVs and a lot of non-viral deals. Excellent. Well, look for that online early this week on biocentury.com. Thank you, Lauren and Karen. We're going to shift now to China. We're counting down the days to our China Healthcare Summit. This year, the theme is how China innovators will impact the global biotech and medtech industries. And the conference is November 16th to 19th. Joining me to preview the conference, Simone Fishburne and Josh Berlin. Josh, welcome back to the podcast. Yeah, Jeff and team, thank you so much for having me. We're really excited about our eighth BioCentury Bay Helix China Summit. Coming up, as you mentioned, November 16th to 19th, it's a hybrid event, so we'll have a full venue on site. For those who can't make it to Shanghai, you can access all of the content via our digital platform, and you can still register. It's biocenturychinasummit.com. Plenty of time to get involved with the event, including one-to-one meetings, both in person and digitally. Too many sessions, really, for me to go through. would really encourage folks to check out the website, but... I did want to highlight a few in what I think are really the top sessions. First off, our Insights partner, McKinsey & Company, will return this year with its eighth China Summit report. That's always a highlight of the event with a lot of data on the market. Uh, And they'll also be discussing the globalization of China biotech. That's a report that you can download and keep for yourself if you attend the event. Another huge highlight this year that's different is our partner on this event is called Bay Helix Group. That's really the leading professional society in China for life sciences executives. This is their 20th anniversary. And so we decided to have a part of the program this year really focused on their 20th anniversary. 
We will have a series of interviews. We, our BioCentury team has done about 15 one-to-one interviews with China Life Sciences leaders talking about the last 20 years in China and making predictions for the future. Um, we'll also have a special panel on stage of former Bay Helix chairman who will talk more about how they see the market evolving over time. Another session I did want to highlight, and this is one where you don't need to be attending the full China Summit. We are going to kick off the program this year on November 3rd with a free webinar on real-world evidence studies in China. I think this is going to be a really, really interesting discussion. We'll have a discussion of a survey that we recently did with our partner, HLT. There'll also be a panel, including Beijing, Novartis, and Pfizer. That'll be moderated by BioCentury. And then we'll also have a special official from Boao, China, talking about the RWE pathway. That's a real rare opportunity to hear directly from him. You can register for that separately using the URL biocenturyrwe.com. You can also uh, check out more about that on the China Summit website. The other session I really wanted to highlight is our annual scene setter session. Simone and the editorial team have been working really hard on this presentation, and it's going to be a really, really good panel. And so I thought maybe, Simone, you could mention a few things that you're looking at in this scene setter presentation and panel. Thanks, Josh. Yes, this presentation is actually a deep dive analysis that we do. We do it based on our BCIQ database, and we do go to company sources. And it's one of the ways that we take a look at the emerging China biotech scene. And, you know, there's a lot of buzz. You've been talking about the 20 years of Bay Helix. Those are some really interesting interviews. I was in a couple, and I know that there's some pretty big voices. They'll be looking back, I believe, at the history of the last 20 years and maybe projecting a little bit. And in a way, that's what we're doing here. So we're looking at this and saying, you know, China's first bellwethers, I would call them now stalwart companies, maybe in the, in the ecosystem there, you could think about Beijing, Xilabs and Innovent. They're really global players. They've got market caps over $10 billion. They've started to successfully deliver drugs to patients. I think in the next couple of years or so, we could expect to see a few more. You've got companies that are on the cusp of getting revenues. They've got products that are soon going to be launched or they've been recently launched. And we'll see if some of those can become bellwethers. What we're looking at in this analysis is five years down the line, what's the next class going to look like? And so we're looking at what we consider innovation aspects. So how many of them will have first-in-class products, let's say, or new modalities or exciting technologies. And our first cut is really by looking at companies that have raised more than a certain amount, either on public or private markets, since the beginning of 2020. And that's given us a set of just under 50 companies. And now we are looking at the profiles of those companies, trying to get a snapshot of what China's future leaders are going to look like. And it's really pretty interesting what we're seeing so far. One of the reasons I'm not going to tip my hat to any of this is that we are still deep in the analysis and it sort of changes by the hour, actually, as we, <laughs> as we look up new bits of information. But overall, I think that what we're seeing is going back to the Bay Helix 20 years is how much the scene is very different from even five years ago or 10 years ago. 
Me Too's is just not a thing now. These are not mm. the companies who are driving China. And anybody who does not have their eye on the amount of innovation coming out of China and the way this is actually going to compete and compare with what we see in the West, and I mean Boston, San Francisco, all the major hubs, my expectation is that some of these ones that we're looking at are going to be global players. Yeah, you know, and the panel that Simone's going to be moderating to talk about the scene setter also has, you know, it's a really great session. We have Wu Xiaobin, who's the GM of Beijing in China, long time before that was the long time Pfizer GM in China. We have Christian Hogg, who's the CEO of Hutchmed. We have Niels Emmerich of AbbVie, who did the two famous outlicensing deals now in China, one with uh, IMAB and one with Jaco Bio. And we have Jane Wu, who's now running a, a really interesting new public fund called Spring Hill Fund. So I think it's going to be a really dynamite discussion and definitely one of the highlights of the event. Well, I'd better go off and finish analyzing some of that data then. Yes, you should. Uh, Not to put any pressure on you. <laughs> thanks, thanks for the preview, guys. I will say for my part, I'm excited that we will be taking the podcast on the virtual road. Josh and I will tag team it. And we have some really good guests on. First and foremost, Tony Chen, who was a guest uh, a couple of months ago and was always fun to have on the pod. Who else is joining us, Josh? Yeah, we have Deborah Yu from Lion Bio, which is one of the, the hot cross-border companies. She's always got a real good sense of what's happening in the China market. I think she'll be really good. We also have Fang Ning Zhang of McKinsey, who will join the podcast with Jeff and I, and she'll talk a little bit about some of the key findings of the McKinsey report this year that they'll be presenting at the China Summit. So it's a really, really yeah. good session. Again, yeah. if you go to biocenturychinasummit.com, you can find out more information. And then for the November 3rd webinar, you can go to biocenturyrwe.com. Awesome. Thanks for that, Josh. Well, hey, while we're talking about the emerging Chinese biotech scene and up and coming companies, let's turn to our emerging company profile segment. We had two emerging company profiles last week. And one focused on a four-year-old company out of Shanghai called LP Science. Now, they're taking a dual-track strategy of in-licensing molecules for the China market, which is a strategy that many other China biotechs have taken before. But they're also prioritizing the development of a broad immuno-oncology pipeline that features a CD39 franchise. And we spoke with co-founder, chairman, and CEO, Darren G. And he told my colleague, Stephen Hansen, that while the inlicing strategy provides the company with near-term opportunities, for him, the real value creation will come from the company's wholly owned pipeline being developed for the global markets. Josh, I, I think you've followed Darren's career for a while now. What grabs you about this company? First off, Elpa Science is presenting at the China Summit this year, so we're really happy to have them on our roadshow track. But you know, Darren, I've known Darren for many years, and his career is really emblematic of what's happening, I think, in China. And he's also a Bay Helix leader for many years. I first met Darren many years ago. He was the CEO and co-founder mm -hmm of a preclinical CRO, Pharma Legacy. And his career path is similar to a few other leaders in China biotech. Preclinical CRO, 
He then went to Roche. Many, many folks probably know him from Roche, where he was the VP and global head of business development for Asia and emerging markets. He then became a venture partner at LAV, Lily Asia Ventures, and now CEO and founder of uh, Innovative Biotech. So I think that that pathway is something that we've seen mm -hmm. with other China biotech leaders as well. And it's just amazing how far, you know, both Darren and the whole ecosystem has evolved from the times when he was really focusing on CRO services and is now founder and CEO of this hot biotech. Yeah. And the company has raised 260 million to date. Notable backers include Lily Asia Ventures, Hill House, Cormorant. And they're a good company to get to know as they're likely not going to stay private for long. Another Bay Helix member who is on the team, uh, Chief Business Officer Kim Nearing, who is one of the very few Westerners who is in Bay Helix. She's ex-Amgen and she is also with BVCF which is a well-known Chinese VC. Yeah, and also on the Bay Helix board. So oh, for those right. of you that don't know Kim, if you're ever looking for someone that really knows what's happening in China, she's a great person to get to know who's based in the US. The other company we profiled was Rectify. They're out of Cambridge, Mass. They debuted a week or two ago with 100 million. They are doing personalized therapies to restore ATP binding cassette transporter function in multiple organs with an initial focus on the liver. The company is backed by Atlas, Omega Funds, Forbeyond, and Longwood Funds. So certainly some blue chip investors there. Founder and CSO Jonathan Moore left Vertex in 2018. He started a lab at MIT, but he left two years later after hitting it off with Atlas Ventures, Raj Devraj, and Jason Rhodes, the trio decided to form this company. Now, as I said, Rectify is first focusing on liver diseases. They're not yet disclosing specific indications, but half of the 24 ABC transporters that are linked to human disease harbor missense mutations that cause abnormal lipid transport. So definitely a company to watch. There aren't many, if any, companies exclusively focused on this type of science. Well, that's all we have time for this week. Josh, thanks again for joining us. It's an honor. Hope I get another uh, ticket back one day. Excellent. And of course, Simone, Lauren, and Karen, always great to have you guys on the bench. All of our podcasts are available on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, and Google. Kendall Square Orchestra provides the music for our podcasts. The group connects science and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music while supporting causes related to healthcare and education. <laughs>